Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that through the pages of scripture and the work of your spirit, you're still speaking to us today. Give us ears to hear what you might want to say. In Christ's name, amen. You can be seated. Uh, last Sunday, we celebrated All Saints Day, and we talked about the hope that we have because of what God has done in Jesus Christ, the hope that we have for an eternal inheritance. And both our Old Testament reading and our Gospel reading speak to, I believe, this hope for eternal life. Our colic today, uh, in our colic today, we, we say that, we, we pray to God that he would make us children of himself and heirs of eternal life. And then we pray that we would purify ourselves as he is pure in this hope, this hope of eternal and everlasting life. Now, of course, as Christians, we're not simply serving God now because we know that there's a great reward in heaven for us. To serve God now in this life is to lead a, an abundant life, a life that is, is filled with, with hope and a life that is in line with, by God's grace, the way that he's designed us to live. And so it's not all about just what happens after this life, but this is a, a precious hope that we have as Christians, this hope of everlasting life with God, and we shouldn't underplay it. In fact, the world around us, which is becoming more secular and uh, post-Christian, is kind of grasping at anything, uh, grasping at hope in the face of mortality. I, I read an article a couple of weeks ago about a group of billionaires that are working to, as they put it, cure death. And they're wanting to do this through their own strength and in their own resources. One of them talked about death as sort of an engineering problem. And he said, you know, basically if we could just turn off the wrong switches and turn on the right switches at the cellular level, then we could, we could at least double or triple maybe the, the lifespan today. Another uh, one of these folks talked about technological immortality. And she said, you know, you're... Your body is going to die, but maybe we can download your brain into a robot or, in, or, or a computer, and therefore you could be technologically immortal. That doesn't sound very appealing to me, but this lady thought it was some hope. Well, it sounds kind of bizarre, uh, but these are serious people. These are founders of some of the most powerful corporations in the world that are talking about this. They don't have any other hope other than themselves and their own intelligence and their own technology and devices. But as Christians, as people who believe in the God of the Bible, we have hope in the giver of life. We believe that God is the giver of life and his power is greater than even death itself. So that's where our hope lies. Now, in the Old Testament, we don't have a solid basis for believing, certainly there's no solid basis in the Old Testament for believing in bodily resurrection because the resurrection of Jesus hadn't happened yet. But I think there are places in the Old Testament where there are sort of hints 
or inklings or intuitions on the part of some of the writers that their relationship with God is going to last beyond this life. Uh, for example, the most famous psalm in the Bible, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of what? Death. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord for how long? Forever. So I think in there, you see, David, because of the relationship that he had with God, even though, again, he didn't have quite the solid foundation that we have as Christians, looking at this in light of the resurrection of Jesus, he believes that this relationship is going to go on forever. There's another psalm that I, that I uh, really love, and that's Psalm 73. And that's a psalm of, um, not David, but Asaph. And in Psalm 73, he says, My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. There's that word again. So I think there are the, the, these inklings or intuitions, if you will, in some of the Old Testament writers that because I am a friend of God, this friendship is going to go on forever because he's the Lord of life and he's the Lord of death. I think they had that hope. Now, I think that's what we're seeing in Job 19. You know the story of Job. He was the wealthiest man of his time. He was the Bill Gates in his day. It says at the beginning of Job that he was the greatest man in the East, super wealthy. He was a family man who loved his children. He had 10 children. And uh, he loved his children and, and cared for them. And even it says that he, he would sacrifice to God on behalf of his children just in case that they had cursed God and sinned against God. He, he was a God-fearing man. He was a family man. He loved his children. He had great wealth. But in one day, it was all taken away from him. And God allowed Satan to test Job. He lost his wealth. He lost all of his children. In, in a tornado-like storm, they were together in one place, and, and, the, and the house collapsed, and there was no, no survivors. And then he lost his health. And it says that uh, Satan put upon Job loathsome sores in his body, and he was reduced, this great man, the Bill Gates of his day, was reduced to sitting on an ash heap, which is a sign of mourning, scraping off the, soil, the sores with a shard of pottery. And his wife said, you remember what she said? Get, curse God and die, Job. Just give up. Give up on God. Well, he didn't give up on God. He, he had lost everything, but he didn't lose faith in God, even though it, it was perplexing to him what was going on. He wanted to argue with God. He wanted his day in court with God. He wanted to vindicate himself in the presence of God. But he didn't give up. He didn't understand what was happening, but he didn't quite give up on God. And that's one of the lessons, that's one of the morals of the book of Job. It's not so much answering the question of why God allows these terrible things to happen. It is giving us a model of how a person who's faithful to God 
can go through something like this. And then at the very end, it sort of gives, a, 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 it reframes the whole question of suffering from a God's eye point of view. It really is a beautiful and profound book, the book of Job. But at this point in Job 19, um, Job is longing for a vision from, of God that, that I think transcends his life here on earth. He says in verse 25 these famous words, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Now that's a longing for somebody to vindicate him. That's how that word redeemer is being used in this context. Again, it's kind of like a court scene. Somebody to stand up with me and and champion my cause because I'm just a mortal man, Job understands, and I'm up against a holy, powerful God. I need somebody to stand up with me and be my champion and be my vindicator, my redeemer. And he has faith that there is such a redeemer. And, of course, we believe as Christians that ultimately that's pointing to Jesus Christ. He is our redeemer. He is our go-between. He is our mediator. And we can stand in God's presence because of Jesus Christ. But that's what Job is longing for, a redeemer, a vindicator, a champion. He says, I know that I have one. But then he says in verse 26, And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Beautiful words. And by the way, this is part of, as many of you know, the, the, the liturgy of the Anglican funeral. As we say this, as we go in to the processional to begin a funeral service, we quote from Job 19. So as I read those words, I'm thinking about some of the, the brothers and sisters, some of the saints that we have buried here in this parish, and they died in this hope. Now, some people will say... Some scholars do say Job did not have a hope beyond the grave. He couldn't have had, and so that's not what he's talking about here. And they make some good arguments. One argument is that there are other places in the book of Job where it's clear that he doesn't have hope beyond the grave. For example, Job 14. Chapter 14, he says, it starts off this way. Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. Job is very poetic. This is beautiful poetry all throughout. And he says, he comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. And then another place there in chapter 14, he says, man lies down, dies, and never gets up again. And that's it. So there are places where Job speaks that way, but then there are other places where his hope seems to be stretching out beyond that. So other commentators say, you know, Job sort of swings from hope to despair. He goes down in the valley, and then he comes up on the other side. And here in chapter 19, my view is that he's on the upswing. And he's giving voice to a hope and to a longing that, that maybe he fully can't even understand or articulate. But he's reaching out to this hope that the relationship that he has with God will continue beyond this life, and he will have his day with God. There's a story about when uh, Handel was composing the Messiah. I don't know if this is a true story or not. Maybe it's apocryphal. But, uh, but anyway, the story goes that when Handel was composing the Messiah, a servant came in and found him weeping 
copious tears. And, and Handel turned to him and said, I think I've just seen heaven before me and God himself. And because of that vision, he was, he was weeping. And we know that after the great hallelujah course, the next thing that opens up is, I know my Redeemer lives. That beautiful aria, I know that my Redeemer lives. These very words. And perhaps Job was also given this sort of glimpse of glory to come as he writes these words. And perhaps as he spoke, my heart faints within me. Perhaps he is speaking through tears as he has this vision of God. But I do believe that there is within the Old Testament piety this strand. Again, it doesn't have the firm basis that we have as Christians, but I'm a friend of God and this friendship is going to go on forever. Now, when we get to the New Testament, it's much more solid, this hope for eternal life that we have because of Jesus Christ, his resurrection, and his clear teaching. And here in Luke 20, we have clear teaching of Jesus about the reality of eternal life and bodily resurrection. I love this passage. It's kind of funny because these Sadducees think they have Jesus on the ropes. These Sadducees come to Jesus, and they were kind of like the theological liberals of Jesus' day. They were the rationalists. And they, they understood that Jesus believed in the resurrection of the body, and they came up with a question to try to make his belief in the resurrection of the body look ridiculous, to try to trip him up. So they come up with the scenario of the, of the, of the, the widow who had seven husbands. The brothers who had one bride. Well, Moses had taught that when your brother dies, if he, uh, if, if he had no children, then, then the man must take, as his brother, take this widow and raise up offspring for his brother so that the family line could continue and so that the widow could be taken care of. She has no children to take care of her. So you have an obligation as a brother to take care of the widow and to continue this lineage or to begin the lineage. And in this scenario that they come up with, there's seven brothers, verse 29. The first took a wife and died without children. The second and the third took her, verse 30. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterwards, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? They ask gleefully, probably. For the seven had her as a wife. It's not seven brides for seven brothers, it's it's uh, one bride for seven brothers in this scenario. Well, Jesus answers the question here, and I think what he says here is just brilliant. First of all, he teaches us something about the marriage state in the age to come. And uh, how you respond to this, I guess, is a good litmus test to where you're at in your marriage. <laughs> because he teaches that there is not going to be marriage in the, the heaven and earth to come. There's not going to be marriage in the new age. And it's because one of the reasons is it's, you're not going to need the married state. One of the purposes of marriage, not the only purpose, but one of the purposes of marriage, of course, is procreation. Uh, to, to fund the next generations, to keep the generations going. Well, in heaven, you, you're not going to have to worry about that because those who die in Christ are equal to the angels, he says in verse 36. Share in the immortality of angels and our sons of God being sons of the resurrection. They cannot die anymore. So 
that's one of the reasons why there isn't marriage in heaven. Does that mean, some people ask, well, am I going to be able to recognize my spouse? Am I going to recognize my family? Yes, I think absolutely. It's not saying that you're not going to recognize your spouse. And maybe you'll recognize that they were your married partner. I think that's probably going to be the case. The relationships in many ways are going to continue. It's just that the marriage state itself is going to be obsolete. We're not going to need marital state. And one of the reasons, again, is because there's not going to be need for, for procreation to keep the generations going. And then he argues quite brilliantly again for uh, the truth that a relationship with God continues after death. Um, he says in verse 37, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. See, they had quoted Moses against him. Now he's going to quote Moses against, against them. They thought they had him with Moses, but he's going to turn, turn and, and use Moses as his kind of knockdown, drag out argument. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush. This is Exodus chapter 3. Moses encounters God in the burning bush, and God introduces himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. He doesn't say, I was the God. He doesn't use the past tense, and that's Jesus' point here. He calls the Lord the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. In other words, God is still in some sort of relationship. He is still their God. He's still the God of the patriarchs, even though they have died. Even after their death, he is still God. He is still Lord over them. A traditional view is that these patriarchs died in faith in God, the God that revealed himself in the Old Testament. They were heirs of the, uh, they had made covenant promises to God. They are heirs of the covenant in Christ. And when they die, they went to be with the Lord. And at the day of resurrection, their bodies will rise again. And their body and soul will be reunited in the presence of God. And so the point here Jesus is making is that God is giver of life. He is the Lord over death. And this relationship that we have with him now continues forever. That's the hope that we have as believers in Jesus Christ. That's the hope that the world can give us. So, friends, don't let your confidence in this God be eroded by the secularism of our culture today, by the materialism of our culture today. And by materialism, I don't mean, of course, here the sense of loving money and loving property and possessions. I'm saying materialism in the philosophical sense, which says that the only reality there is, is matter. There is no God, there is no soul, or consciousness, or whatever you want to call the part of you that is more than just your body. The scientific materialist will argue that case. Um, I came across a, a kind of a funny quote by Marilyn Robinson, who's a great writer, uh, novelist, but she's written some essays, and one of her essays she talks about this materialistic viewpoint, this worldview that she encounters as an academic all the time. 
and she encounters people who say, well, the brain is nothing more than a piece of meat, and we're nothing more than a piece of meat, and that's the kind of the worldview they have. And she said, well, try that next time when you see a baby in a carriage and go up to the mother and compliment her on her beautiful piece of meat and see what happens. She says, if you do that, people will start thinking you're a sociopath or a psychopath because we intuitively know there's more to the body, more to the, the person than just material substance. And, and actually, philosophers have pointed this out, that the argument for materialism is kind of self-contradictory because you're saying, I have reasons to believe in materialism. Well, where does your reason come from? Well, it comes from the brain. Well, what is the brain? Well, nothing more than a piece of meat. And there's just there are these electrical blips that are floating around in the brain. Well, then why would you trust your reason? You see what I'm saying? It undermines confidence in, in reason. It sort of self-destructs. And it certainly doesn't account for all that we are as image bearers in Christ. We believe as Christians that God is the creator of matter. Behind the material creation is a creator. He's the giver of life. And he values and cares for his creation. And those who are in Christ and have a relationship with him, he will not let even the grave detract from his love to them. He is the God not of the dead, but of the living. This is our hope and our confidence. I told you last week that Josie had a friend, a former student, who lost a husband at a very young age, just recently, 29 years old. He passed away. And in her Facebook posts, she just was kind of witnessing to the faith that she had in God. And she said, you know what? Uh, my heart is broken in a million pieces, is how she put it. Understandably so. But she said, I'm not angry with God. I'm going to trust him. We've known his goodness. And my husband is in his presence, and I will see him again. That's the difference that this hope makes. And so we thank God for giving us this hope. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that you are a living God and that you are the God of the living. And that as we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are spiritually alive. We are made alive in you. And we're given this relationship that endures forever. And we can have the same kind of hope that Job has, as he expressed it in Job 19. That he believed that even after his flesh wore down, he would see God. And we can have this hope as Christians because of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, for the hope of eternal life that fuels our life even now so that we can live with courage and we can live with joy, even in the midst of difficult times and circumstances. Lord, help us to witness to this hope by the way that we live. Give us opportunities to speak to people today who are being influenced by a culture that says there really is no hope beyond what we can do for ourselves. Give us opportunities to witness to people who are hopeless about the hope in Jesus Christ. I pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.